0: And that's when I just started saying, okay, let's figure out what's going on. I'm gonna start at the very beginning. I'm gonna look at the papers that discovered the virus and, you know, take it wherever it leads me. And I never expected to find that those papers didn't actually show any virus.
1: Hello everyone, that was a clip from the documentary series The Viral Delusion, today I'm joined by the creator of that series, Michael Wallach. The series focuses on that most controversial and divisive of claims, that viruses either don't exist or aren't responsible for the diseases we attribute to them. What is this? The lunatic fringe? A government-sponsored psyop? Or a revolution in medical and scientific thought? I don't know. But over the past year, I've been continually struck by the fascinating points people of this persuasion raise. Michael has been in the, perhaps unique, position of interviewing many of the leading thinkers in this area. In this interview, I ask him about his own intellectual journey of coming to embrace such a seemingly radical position. That journey actually started at the US State Department, where Michael once worked as a Middle East advisor. What he learnt there about the nature of entrenched bureaucracies colored his future view. Details of the full 7 seven-hour viral delusion series are in the info box, as well as details of how to subscribe to this show and get access to the forum and Zoom groups. Now, here's Michael telling his story.
0: When I first joined the State Department, I had like a couple sort of visions and hopes and dreams. And it was like, can can someone who has the vision of like a humane foreign policy for the United States. Like what, how far can you go? And also like, what can you see about how everything works from that perspective? Maybe I wouldn't go so far as to say like, I'm a complete hundred percent pacifist, but you know, pretty close. Right. And so from that perspective of like, let's not have a colonialist or a neo-colonialist foreign policy. Like let's, let's treat people with respect and cooperate on equal terms and see where that goes. Right. And so I got a job, you know, I, went, I had been to grad school and I had worked in, in for this organization called Seeds of Peace for a really long time, which brings together people from countries at war for dialogue. And so I had a kind of like really um i think interesting background for the state department and, and i was pretty good at statistics and things like that so um, i got hired to basically to be like a pollster for um the state department in the middle east um, so i it was my job to like come up with surveys and ask people in the middle east and then i would hire companies to to go and fulfill those surveys where they would ask people you know, all the questions that I had come up with and then I would get the results back and then I would I would analyze them and I would write a paper about them and then that paper would get distributed through all the different agencies in Washington. What I had hoped in that job was that people would actually take, that people in Washington would take seriously what people in the Middle East thought,
1: <laughs> which was, you know, in hindsight, absurd, right? Just let me interject, Mike, what, about what year did you go into the State Department, just thinking what administration it was? And
0: this was like, I think this was like 2006.
1: Okay. So the, the, ta- the tail end of the Bush years and into Obama.
0: Yeah, it was the tail end of the Bush years. Yeah, exactly. You know, but what I, what I pretty quickly learned was that nobody cared from a policy making perspective what people thought in the Middle East. There was just no discussion like that at all. What seemed to interest people was um, the way that they could use that information like for their own careers or potentially to manipulate people with different kinds of propaganda, basically. And then not only that, I kind of was like, I I was looking for like, where's the policy? Like, where's the policy room? I, I kind of thought there would be like this ongoing discussion once I was inside the state department about like what all of our policies as a nation should be. And I actually never found that conversation. I, I went looking for it all over the place. And I was a presidential management fellow, which is like, it sort of, puts, sort of inserts you into like the mid, middle of the bureaucracy. So I had access to like like all all the, all the top analysts and none of them were really ever having conversations about what our policy should be it was sort of fascinating and i realized i like as a shorthand that essentially there was no conversation like that and if you tried to make a conversation and you tried to challenge any sort of centrally held tenet, that you would just kind of get shouted down or you you would just quickly become like a black sheep that wouldn't be included in, in even the like paltry conversations that, that you m- might maybe get to be a part of. So, like, you know, like one time I, um, I was in a room with like this general and I asked him, like, what is the foundation of the, of the relationship between the United States and Israel? Like, what are the central, mm. <laughs> you know, like, I was, it was just a question, you know, like, what, what are the central, like, factors? What are the, the strongest motivating factors there? And he just like, it was like, he whipped his head around like it was like The Exorcist or something and just shouted me down. And you know, that was that. You're not allowed to have that conversation. If you bring it up, you're some kind of, you're a black sheep. So like on one side, you know, I saw stuff like that going on. On the other side, I mean, I think one of the most like fascinating moments for me was and, and and this is more of an outlier. It's not like it was day-to-day like this, but but still, this this like I got invited to this special conference of analysts, and the lead inside the government and the lead speaker at that special internal conference was the PR firm who ran PR for Exxon after the Exxon Valdez spill. Right. And they were like giving tips to everybody on like how like, because like the Iraq war was like a, a mess at that time. <laughs> it was like an obvious mess. It was like the Exxon Valdez bill. They were like, look, this is how we do it. You need to have a 10 year outlook and, you know, you don't want to like store, drum up too much controversy around it. You kind of want to just let it float away in the, in the public's mind and bring up other topics, you know? And I was like, wow, this is so dark, <laughs> you know, this is so, this is so dark, like, People are like being killed, Mm. (laughs) you know, and this is this inane, like this, this, this really anti-human, anti-intellectual plan, which obviously the machine of government's going to do that. But um, just being exposed to all of that and seeing it go down and, and eventually it got to the point where I realized the only way I was going to ever have a career in, Uh, the State Department, or really in Washington at all, anywhere in the government, was that if I just embraced this whole ideology and only think within certain parameters and only spend your energies, you know, trying to come up with ad campaigns for the United States to win over, you know, certain populations to, to look more sympathetic,
1: Okay, if I, can I pop a couple of questions in yeah, yeah, yeah. before we start to progress? So when I think of when you say surveys, what pops into my mind? And I don't know if this is related or not, mm-hmm. but there was a survey of the Muslim world that Sam Harris used to quote a lot when the new atheist movement was big in that whole whole phase of 50 or 60% of Muslims would actively support suicide bombing against the West. And when you went into that, it was nothing like that at all. The question was asked in a way, well, if you were in absolute dire straits and your whole civilization had been taken over, would you under those circumstances see this kind of military maneuver as being Something that could be justifiable, and then the, the, the ones that said yes to that was probably at the same or lower percentage than you would get in the West. So, is that what you're talking about with surveys, or is that something is that something different?
0: Yeah, I mean it's that kind of thing exactly. Um, but I, you know, because I actually got to write my own stuff, and I actually, I just, I happened to know what I was doing to a degree. I happened to have some sort of understanding of the psychology of what was going on because I had spent so many years working for this dialogue organization. You know, I wrote surveys and and i had a pretty great boss who would just gave me a fair amount of independence i I got to write things that i thought were actually interesting to me in in my questions in my surveys. i wasn't trying to like do like a gotcha question like that okay i wanted to try to like peel away at the psychology of like israeli-palestinian peace process and like what what could we do that would work in the public imagination on both sides, you know, stuff like that, or trying to, I, you know, I knew like a lot less about like Saudi society. And so, and, and very, there's very little knowledge about that in, in Washington. And so like, I wanted to sort of like get at, you know, aspects of the relationship between the people and and the Saudi ruling class and like, how do people feel there really? And the same thing in Syria and, you know, stuff like that, where you're just like, Let's like try to ask interesting questions and try to really understand people and see like what pops out of that.
1: Did you did you perceive your colleagues as being knowledgeable about these societies and the way they functioned?
0: That's a good question. I mean, there were a lot of colleagues that I had. So some of them were knowledgeable and some of them weren't. I remember at the time it was the Iraq war and I didn't think the Iraq analyst, the lead Iraq analyst, like he he, like had no background in Iraq. It was like kind of stunning, but like the lead Palestinian analyst, like she was, she really, she totally knew what she was talking about. You know, she totally got it. So there was there was like a mixture. I mean, I just think that like to no surprise, like the vast majority of people weren't reading critical literature. That and that that really has formed my worldview in a lot of ways. Which is that like when you go inside like institutions like the State Department or the Pentagon or so many different institutions, what what I found was that like nobody was reading the the critical literature like it just almost didn't exist i was kind of like wow i was almost felt like pretty isolated in that
1: okay so that everyone's consuming kind of reports from brookings or these kind of think tanks Mm -hmm. and that's informing their worldview and there's certainly not scott horton's anti-war radio playing in the background anywhere that there's a kind of information bubble yeah that's very because i think for for people on the outside there's always this discussion of Is the US government some super smart entity that's forging, willfully forging this global empire? Or is it just people who are really caught up in their own ideology, bumbling into one disaster over the next? And then because of the economic power of the US, that kind of forges an empire as they go. And mostly people who walk out of places like the State Department have this quite critical view of the level of competence of of people in there in terms of seeing a broad picture of the world, in terms of, as you're saying, Uh, taking on board the reason they they think the way they do is because it would never occur to them to think any other way at all
0: yeah exactly and and that's not to say that i see i and this was like one of my central questions it's like one of the reasons i wanted to go work for the state department i I wanted to see like what how does the psychology of of these institutions work and um you know for the I, i think that's for 90 you know, 5% of the people that I came across, it was just kind of like, yeah, this is just kind of like what we read and what we think, and this is just how we do it. And then, you know, then there were like the three or 4% of people who they kind of understood that there was a critical narrative, but they were like completely powerless. And it was kind of like, well, I'll just do what I can. And then I, I think every once in a while, you got the sense that maybe there were, maybe some people who knew what they were doing but it was, it was really rare to, to come in contact with them. So I, me- I remember like one meeting where like this guy who was very high up, very close to uh, Dick Cheney came in and people were talking about how to spin what was going on that month in the Iraq war. And he basically like slammed the table and was like, don't talk about the effing Iraq war. Like, have you seen the steel production numbers? God damn it. And I was like, "Oh, okay, this guy actually like is this guy's actually thinking like he's looking at steel production numbers like you wouldn't get like hard you know hard nosed conversations like that anywhere, but this guy was actually analyzing and, and had some kind of plan he had some kind of vision he was trying to do something you know e- evil or good or whatever it was it was real and he was Thinking about it. And that was the kind of thing you just didn't, you just, it, it stood out so much, I can still remember it to this day.
1: Does that make sense? It does. I remember reading about Dick Cheney that he was on some board of commerce for economic development in Azerbaijan, right? And most people can't find Azerbaijan on the map. I might even be mispronouncing it, right? But I think, wow, like Cheney's actually knowledgeable about the economic development of certain industries in Azerbaijan and sufficiently involved in that to be on a particular board that discusses it like if you're that involved in that one country you must have a pretty advanced general knowledge of what's going on in the world in contrast to a george w bush say who i wouldn't think would be able to find it on the map and isn't that that indicated that with people like cheney there is this kind of it seems advanced level of knowledge of what's going on right down to the minutiae of oil and gas industries in far off places
0: yeah absolutely exactly exactly and so I think, look, I think a lot of the thinking emerges it outside of the government and then is fed into the government, you know, usually through the president and their and their appointees. And then the rest of the government just kind of plays catch up and uh, PR for, for whatever those people are doing and what they want to know. And, and that's kind of how, how it works, right? Like Exxon goes looking for a new oil field to exploit. They find one in Turkmenistan. They start negotiating with the president of Turkmenistan. And then the president of Turkmenistan says, we don't want to give this oil field to you. We want to give it to somebody else. So then they call the state department and they say, we got a real problem here. This guy's a real president's a real asshole. He's going to screw it up. And you know, we we found this field. And, and then you get this whole churning and think tanks get involved. And suddenly people are getting grants to look at the authoritarian tendencies of the president of Turkmenistan mm-hmm. and you know, the Council on Foreign Relations wants to look at media freedom in Turkmenistan and Amnesty is suddenly getting a grant to, to look at, uh, are there political prisoners in, in Turkmenistan? And and then all of a sudden the people at, you know, the the human rights uh, division in the State Department are writing up reports on this kind of thing. And, and they're looking at social justice among the poor in Turkmenistan. And it looks like... Everybody's just kind of you know doing their little thing, and how it began is is with a with a real problem that somebody really had, and they're trying to you know
1: solve it but Sure. Do you think that draws in people when we're talking about social justice and press freedoms and all the rest? Amnesty. Do you think it draws in true believers? And because they're paid to look in one place and not not another, that's where they'll look. So, just for example, I'm I'm fascinated by the figure of Samantha Power. Okay, the, the, oh. the idealist who uh, really championed this idea of responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention, and basically created chaos across. The world, and she's not gone away. She's in East Africa now, talking about the Russian situation. But I mean, one of one of the things people cite in this, you know, the endless kind of discussions you could have of does she genuinely believe the words that come out of her mouth, or is she just looking for a paycheck? Well, one of the detracting arguments be well, you know, if she really cares, she'd talk about Yemen, which she doesn't, right? That, that's that never leaves her lips because that's a U.S. created catastrophe there with the intermediary of the Saudis. So she's not really humanitarian, and I, I just wonder. I, I do find it fascinating. Does she believe the word she's saying? And she's paid to look in a certain area. So that, that's where she's looking. What, what, what's your opinion on that whole kind of situation? I mean, it's been a really long
0: time since I've been t- thinking about characters like Samantha Powers. I mean, it's been more than probably 15 years now. But um, I mean, my, my basic take is that she's totally disingenuous. Uh, you know, that your point is exactly right. But the other thing is sometimes, again, these characters will emerge out of academia again without having read any real critical literature you know like i went to i went to graduate school at Columbia university i studied like among considered some of the, the top professors and critical literature on the yugoslav war just never came across my right. you know it just never it, it was i was never exposed to it through colombia i had to go search it out you know i had to go search out what the serbian perspective on that war was it wasn't presented to us you know we, we actually literally were pre- presented with like Richard Holbrook's take on it and like Henry Kissinger's take on it. And um maybe we would be given like a debate, like who do you think is like has a better take? Richard Holbrook or or Henry Kissinger? And you're like, oh actually <laughs> there's a totally different story to be had here. So I mean I remember reading Samantha Power's book, uh, her writings on the Yugoslav War, you know, way back. And they were just like simplistic garbage. Just propaganda, really. And that, that, I think that was her, some of her very first writing was on genocide, quote unquote, you know, looking at genocide. But again, as you said, she ignored other th- genocides and, and and ethnic cleansing that didn't fit her pro America, you know, pro neocolonialist American narrative. So was she indoctrinated in that from the beginning and then just is now a useful idiot, or is she? Or is she disingenuous from the beginning? I know a lot, I, I grew up in this community. I think that uh, most people are just indoctrinated and then they just kind of learn these habits of don't discuss this, don't discuss that. And they sort of take on those 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 habits as they realize that their careers re- will rely on it. And that's it. They'll have a career. You know, Samantha Powers has had, of course, this extraordinary career because she's the perfect, you know, salesman for this kind of humane interventionist foreign policy of, you know, this young, you know, she rose as this young woman fighting against genocide. And that was how, you know, the United States intervention in in Yugoslavia was built and sold. So I, I think that probably she had not been that exposed to the critical literature because it's really it really is hard to find in that world. And you're considered, you know, if you read everything that your professor gives you and then you write a great paper about it, you're considered brilliant and you get all the you know adulation. And and then if you write a an academic paper that uh, helps to sell that perspective, then you know all of a sudden people start knocking on your door and they want to, you to publish a book. If you do a good job with that as a book, then all of a sudden you've got a job at the UN, you know, representing the United States. So um, you never get a chance to sit down and look at another perspective unless you proactively want to do it. So it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah, and in doing so, you then either have to live a lie or you've excluded yourself from that world.
0: Exactly. So if you want to
1: stay in that world, you're much better not looking at it. Yeah, I mean, it's very Jungian, you know, just like kind of people
0: not wanting to look at the shadow that their perspective creates. And I I, I think that psychologically, that's my best way of saying it. It's it's not that people are, uh, it's not like she knows better and is lying. It's that like literally psychologically, like she can't even go there. You know it's like you you have people who put like those electric collars on their dogs these characters they they can't go there they get like they get like fried when they start to stray too far from the narrative and so they don't and then they don't and then they remain ignorant of anything critical and and that's kind of the whole conversation and that's why you know their heads turn around like the exorcist when you actually begin to ask these questions
1: sure um, to a degree i can understand it because people particularly if having a podcast, people will leave comments or write to me all the time with points that challenge my worldview, okay? And some of them I want to look at and, and we're going to discuss in a moment about viruses not existing or not having the effect they've had. And that's some, certainly something that's challenged my worldview. But the reason I selected to go down that road was because of the calibre of the people who were suggesting that, right? And other times I deselected because I don't see that. I don't see people who are, say, talking about a flat earth and I, I had a message this the other day. Uh, on this topic, saying you know, I should really investigate that, and the evidence seemed to be a fellow going down to the beach and saying looks pretty flat to me. So I, you know, obviously I don't select for that, right? So it's it, we're all making these choices all the time mm-hmm. of what to look at and what not to look at. And when you put certain incentives down, I can see how it becomes very easy to to not look and say, oh, that's all kind of crazy talk. It's just some guy doing a, a podcast on the internet with his anti-war nonsense or or whatever. You know, some some socialist writing a book about Yugoslavia, Michael Parenti or something. You know, it, it's easy not to. You can see how. Yeah, you could you could do that.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, Michael Perensy's done like amazing work. Like, you think that guy gets mm. invited to like mm. give lectures at, at the Pentagon? No, <laughs> of course he doesn't. <laughs> you know, so uh, the people who are sitting there at the Pentagon aren't. Are that, that book's not coming across their 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 desk. I, I I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Okay, well, that that's all probably a great setup to talk about what we're going to talk about. We're talking about people ignoring things that their careers depend on them continuing to ignore with virology okay so you transition out of the state department at some point you go into documentary filmmaking and i know you have an interesting experience with your partner uh, becoming ill and recovering and that set your mind on a different course so i think that's that's important background if you could describe that uh, that that story for us please
0: so i left the state department and I moved to New York city. We were living in Brooklyn and then my wife suddenly um, had these n- knees that were getting really inflamed and it would happen for like a couple of weeks. And then they would uh, go down and then her, her other knee would get inflamed uh, for a while and then her like elbows sometimes. Uh, but it got to the point where she was really having a lot of difficulty walking. She started going to rheumatologists in in New York City, and they all said the same thing, which is that she's got early onset arthritis, and there was nothing that um, could be done, really, fundamentally, Um, but they could give her a a regular steroid treatment, and that she should get a a good cane, and the the steroid treatment would take away some of the pain and bring down some of the inflammation, but um, it was something that she was going to have to stay on for the rest of her life and it was really shocking i mean i, I still remember like being on sixth avenue and seeing my wife with a cane and she was 30 and absolutely gorgeous this like these tears coming out of her eye you know in fear that this was this was her life now and i heard on the radio this doctor on uh, wbai in in new york city which is like uh, the alternative radio station and he sounded so smart and he was so mad at the medical system overall and i was just really impressed with how he could field questions about like really disparate topics and i i told my wife about him i said let's just let's just give this guy a a call he sounded really smart maybe he's worth checking and talking to and so we went to um well she went to go see him and he had been the the chief pathologist at a hospital in new york city and then had been so frustrated with the standard of practice that, that he, he quit and had started his own practice. His name was Dr. Ali and he was a Pakistani Muslim doctor who was so good that he was actually the personal doctor of the Lubavitcher rabbi. So I mean, you know, here's the, the, the you know, it's just kind of an amazing little New York thing. Anyway, my wife walks in, he takes a look at her and he says, are you a professional athlete? She says, no. He says, what does your bathroom look like? And my wife says, that's really odd that you asked that question. But honestly, I hate my bathroom. I like viscerally hate my bathroom. And he said, yeah, is the paint peeling on the walls? And, uh, And she said, yeah, it is. He said, okay, you're having an allergic reaction to mold. And you need to get out of that apartment and you'll be fine. And we'll run some tests just to kind of see like, mold allergy levels in you but but uh, that's that's what's going on so we, we left that apartment right away and that was 15 years ago and it never um you know after after a year of being unable to walk the second we left that apartment and we were very hyper you know aware of any mold after that um it's never bothered her again literally never not for 10 minutes
1: that's incredible and obviously i think it's possible for anyone to see how it would have a strong Impact on your mindset regarding the competence of oh, yeah. the, the health system at large, and the possibilities—the possibility of what is possible when you step outside of that.
0: It led it led me and my wife on a journey where we suddenly realized that you know some of these obvious things that um, anyone, if they weren't indoctrinated. Would realize, which is that the medical system, just like every other system, is highly politicized. Is high, you know, comes out of an economic context. Um, that you know, the whole structure of the thing has been uh, has come out of a very particular historical economic context. And uh, to put a, a, a finer point on it, I guess you know, I, I went back uh, for a visit. A follow-up visit with my wife, and and he he held my hand and he held my wife's hand. And he said, Listen, I, I just want you to remember moving forward, of all think about all the children that have died in the Iraq War. Think about all the people who, who, who died under sanctions. He said, This pales in comparison to the Lipitor scandal alone. So be very careful about anything you read from the medical industrial complex and never trust the new Enron Journal of Medicine. And, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine is what you referring yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> and I said, wow, this is amazing. I, I just didn't, hadn't even occurred to me that this realm that we consider sort of apolitical is, of course, insanely politicized. So here I was, I had gone through the State Department for years and look, and and graduate school, by the way, looking around at me going, I think everybody around me is an idiot. Everybody around me is a moron. Everybody thinks that the narratives that we're selling and being sold are the only narratives out there. This is nuts. Like I can't believe nobody's ever read any critical fucking literature, but that was the deal for 95% of the people that I was meeting. And then all of a sudden I realized, I was the same way. I was accepting the whole narrative about the medical uh, complex without ever having read any of the critical literature. So, you know, that led us into, say, when, when, when my wife was pregnant, saying, okay, well, let's go ahead and let's read some of the criti- critical literature about vaccines um, so that we can make an informed decision. And then once you open that Pandora's box, then you go, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is
1: huge. Uh, yes, I think it, it played a big role for me. I, I read a little book on vaccines when I was about 18 years old, and last year I read a much bigger book. I read Niels Ev Miller's book when I was about 18, mm. and I got into Roman Bistrionic and um, Susan Humphrey's uh, work last mm-hmm. year. And just to see that, that the, the, disease, the, the fatality rate of these diseases declined before the vaccination was introduced, Looking at this eighteen, go, that can't be true. Because someone would have mentioned that, right? In all the pro-vaccine propaganda you've heard of, someone at some point might have mentioned, "Oh yeah, basically, it was all kind of resolved before these things came in." But they were the greatest medical innovation ever. You know, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. So, it's, I think probably the audience, and myself, can, can really go along with that point of coming into contact with, uh, yeah, the, the the vaccines are like not what they're what they're cracked up to be. Say so. That's that's another step on the way. Where we're obviously going here, Mike, ultimately, is how you've come to this position that is too extreme for most people and probably would never have occurred to most people to think of uh, had it not been for the COVID crisis of the past two years. It would have never have been something that had arisen in, in our psyches, the idea of viruses not existing. So that continuing to step towards that, uh, unless there's anything I've sort of cut you off from saying there, for me, I think the the strongest cases in, in that um, Looking for your documentary for that are HIV and polio so maybe you would like to say maybe about polio uh, a few things because it wasn't a big leap for me i've produced a podcast on polio before looking at things like how it, it it's this virus throughout human history apparently that doesn't really do very much and then people move into cities and start drinking sewage and they all get sick and that's because of a virus And then the land starts getting sprayed with all these toxic pesticides um, and ultimately DDT. And right at that time, there's an explosion of polio. And then it goes away just before the vaccines come in. But just after DDT is banned, it it falls off a cliff. And then all the numbers are reclassified of what constitutes a case of polio and an epidemic and so on uh, after the vaccine comes in. So it's much harder to have both a case and an epidemic. So Please like add to that in any way you wish to, but to me that seemed to be like one of the stronger cases.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it's just. But let, let's even go back for a sec because it's. I mean, like just it, it's so interesting. Like last night, I was watching um, you know Independence Day. You remember that old Will Will Smith movie from the nineties? Oh yeah, that's Day. a big
1: part of my childhood. Yeah, I mean, it was. I was really. Yeah. You know, my, my son was like,
0: yeah, "I really want to watch like a great action movie, Dad." And I was like, "Okay, let's 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 watch Independence Day." And so they don't know how to beat the aliens, you know, and all of their bombs and their missiles don't work. And then, uh, and then Jeff Goldblum's dad, you know, Jeff Goldblum can't figure out how to, how to beat the aliens. And Jeff Goldblum's dad says, um, you know, don't, don't sit on the floor. You're going to catch a cold. And mm. Jeff Goldblum says, you know, he has that moment, that like third act moment where oh my god his eyes twinkle and dad you got it a cold a virus we've got to give the aliens a virus and it would just i mean having done all the research uh and spoken to so many scientists now and looked at this so carefully it's it's so fascinating to see how um how embedded this idea is in our culture and whether that's purposeful or whether that's just a reflection of how it's embedded it had become by 96, you know, the idea that a cold equals a virus, it's, 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 it's really deep in our culture. And a lot of people um, haven't necessarily thought about that. And they haven't looked at the etymology of how, uh, of the word and how that came to be, you know, like another thing with my son is like we played um, you know Mario Brothers and uh, and then uh, we discovered Dr. Mario which is an amazing you know Nintendo classic Nintendo game. You know Dr. Mario you have to kill the virus and and you like try to kill the virus every time. So this idea that there are viruses and um, that's why we get sick it's really deep in the culture. But you know, what that actually means to people, it, it's different, right? Like if you said, like, how many nucleotides does SARS-CoV-2 have, right, is it, is it, is it embedded in the culture that, that there's 30,000 nucleotides or that there's 29,800, right, theoretically? It's not. There, 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 there's a limit to the popular imagination, to what that means, the word virus. So I think that you come up against it, but maybe and, and we could talk about the whole history of it, but I just think it's so fascinating the way in which the, the language forms a sort of a mental constellation that has to be deconstructed. Um, there's there's absolutely no reason for anyone to get upset about etymology or epistemology or any of these things. They're just super interesting. That's all there is. It's just super interesting it's always helpful to have another perspective it's a fascinating story so i just kind of wanted to start with that i guess because it was just on the on the top of my mind because i had just seen this last night
1: sure well i could understand when when i read the book virus mania and initially i didn't really get what they were saying i had the audiobook on i was out walking through through town and all of a sudden the extravagance of their message hit me The, the this covid virus might not be a thing like this might be a fabled enemy and we've locked down society thousands of people have died this has happened that's how the world economy has been trashed so many people have starved everyone's running around with masks on everyone's terrified of it and that thought for the first time a year into this entered my head what if this is not even a thing what if we've been fighting an, an imagined enemy here not that i believe that but that's the first time i'd even entertained it the first time that thought had arisen. And it was one of the few times in life, I had to pause the book and I couldn't listen to it anymore because it's just too sharp, a handbrake turn for my mind to make, right? I, I had to acknowledge that. But it, it was like the programming in me needs to be rewritten on such a foundational level just to entertain that. Because <laughs> the idea of viruses, it's just always been there for the time, you know, I had measles as a kid. And it's like, yeah, you got a virus. This is a thing that happens. Uh, then you know I, I had to just take a break from it so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I I can I can understand that there's a lot of places where I think there's agreement with a broader range of people okay and then there's a departure so I mentioned Susan Humphreys and Roman Vitrionic who wrote the book dissolving illusions around vaccines it's an excellent book but they they have all the same opinions really about the DDT being one of the causes of the kind of paralysis you see uh, that is then attributed to polio and polio continuing under other names, the rebranding, everything I know about that really comes from that book. And also I find it corresponds with what you're putting in the documentary. Um, but they, they write in the book that pesticides led to an increased susceptibility of viral invasion. DDT was found to enhance the release and intercellular multiplication of the polio virus. And, and I find it quite interesting because they're saying that two different things are going on. So one, straight up DDT poisoning is paralyzing people. Um, yeah. But also, there's, there's, DDT is enhancing polio. And that, that seems like, always, well, yeah, is that an un- unlikely coincidence? But what, what I have to overcome... It's this kind of technical jargon of just reading the wikipedia page on on polio i come up with the, the first thing it says is polio was the polio virus was isolated in 1909 and the structure of the virus was elucidated in 1958 using x-ray diffraction by teams at these different colleges and it was found to have iso head or i'm going to say it's some sort of symmetry and it goes on about the the, the michigan institute of technology and um, the three-dimensional structuring of polio was determined in 1985 using x-ray crystal It all sounds like, wow, there's a lot of scientists looking down a lot of microscopes and seeing something which they are positively identifying as a poliovirus. And in my mind, I think, well, no, come on, surely they can't all be wrong, right? Surely there can't be this grand illusion that is clouding the minds of such clever people. So surely this minority of doctors like the Baileys and, and, and others must have, just must have gone a a bit too far right so how do you respond to that that seeming level of complexity of all these people coming up with looking down microscopes and saying yeah there's a virus here
0: (laughs) yeah i mean it's the, the, the 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 sad thing is that you know we're wrong all the time about all sorts of things institutionally you know um i mean like there's like obvious examples, then there's less obvious examples. I mean, like obvious examples like phrenology, right? Phrenology uh, in the 19, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, this was a, this was a big field. This was a big academic field. And, you know, the, the, the largest phrenology department in the country was uh, at Harvard. And so you had all...
1: This is is personality traits from facial structures. Yes, essentially it was
0: the, the, the scientific justification of racism, right? Where, you know, they quietly in the background started off with the assumption that certain races were intellectually superior. And then went about, you know, all of this scientific research to kind of prove that and find associations and correlations and and all this stuff and they you know there was all sorts of you know stuff that was published on this and now we look back and we say, this is bunk this this is you know this is this was all begging the question right and you know or you see the same thing that doctors were the were the leading supporters of hitler you know during world war ii um or just this past you know just two weeks ago you know, oh, it turns out that the last twenty years of Alzheimer's research uh turns out to be you know completely bunk. I mean, you know, yeah. tens of billions of dollars put into Alzheimer's research all upon a, a, a mistaken foundation. You know, you can just kind of go on and on and on, you know, whether it's the Lipitor scandal or whether it's you know, the low fat diet or all of these things. I mean, we're constantly um encountering paradigms that upon close inspection are the whole paradigm is wrong and all sorts of money gets spent you know on research within that paradigm because that's the whole that the whole point is to justify the paradigm right that's the whole the whole idea it's just like when i go back to to, to what i was saying uh, in terms of like exxon finds oil in turkmenistan and then you know all this research money gets generated that essentially is meant to destabilize Turkmenistan you know and and all this research money in in the medical field it doesn't come out of nowhere it's 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 put into play by companies that are trying to sell pharmaceuticals i mean there's um lehman mchenry didn't make it into my documentary but he wrote a great book called the illusion of evidence-based medicine He was a a philosophy of science professor for like 30 years and then was asked to be an expert witness in a a scientific uh, debate about a pharmaceutical company. And as an expert witness, got to look at like all the pharmaceutical company documents, internal documents, which were subpoenaed. And he said, oh my God, I've, I've been preaching about the beauty and value of science for 30 years, but... I, I realized that has absolutely nothing to do with the real world. This is, this, this, this isn't science. This is just marketing dressed up as science. And um, he said, if you read like, and he said the same thing about the you know, New England Journal of Medicine. He said, like, if you read the New England Journal of Medicine, you'll see a scientific article on page 29 about say heart disease. And then you'll see an advertisement for a drug on page 30. And people think that on one side you have the, the the science and on the other you have the advertisement but but no actually they're both advertisements they've both been generated by the marketing arm of the pharmaceutical
1: company okay so what you're suggesting is and i must say for people if they watch the documentary series the scientists and doctors on there go into this uh, in in a great deal of detail laying out how this happens but you're suggesting in a way that's similar to the state department in a way that i think we can all understand people who get jobs there they then read the material that's put in front of them they're kept very busy reading that material and they essentially initiated into a certain paradigm about the world. And it never even occurs to them to question the the edges of that paradigm. And it would be financially ruinous for them. If they did, it would ruin their career. Something similar is going on in the field of virology where a certain interpretation has been established, a certain interpretation of why people get sick in uh, communities at the same time. And then it wouldn't occur to any of the researchers who are looking down the electron microscopes and believing that they're seeing External pathogens that are invading the body to question that view. And if they did, they would be gently escorted out the door, or not so gently escorted out the door, in, in the way we've seen, particularly with HIV and AIDS with people like Peter Duisburg. Exa- Is that a ex- that's exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's
0: exactly I was just gonna bring up Duisburg. Yeah, that's exactly right. That that's exactly what would happen. You know, just to give a, like an example that's not in the movie, um, a friend of mine works up at Cornell, he was well aware of what was going on from basically from the start. And um Went to uh, a friend of his who's a microbiologist up there, and he said, "Look, this 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 whole scam with the PCR testing for COVID is uh, it's really crazy, you know, isn't it?" And um, and she said, uh, "No, what, what are you talking about?" He said, "Yeah," and he, and he kind of laid out what the problems with the with the PCR test are, which is fundamentally that the whole test was designed without ever having a virus to refer it to. And she said, "Nah, we." You know we use PCR all the time, and and it's it's this, that's crazy talk, you know. And he's like, okay, well, um, why don't you read this academic article that came out by thirty top microbiologists um, criticizing the the PCR test for COVID? And um, she said, all right, I'll read that. And she read it. Got back to him like two weeks later. Like, oh my God, you're right. The whole thing is is completely invalid. He's like, yeah, I know I'm right. <laughs> And, and she gave it to two other microbiologists and they agreed. They were like, oh my God, the whole thing's completely invalid. He, and, and, and my friend said, yeah, you know, but, but Cornell's up here testing like a like thousand kids a week with this completely invalid test and then labeling them based on this test. It's, I'm, I'm going to try to have that you know stopped up here. Will you join me? And all three of them said like, oh, I, absolutely no way. They, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know, they they just wanted to keep their heads down, didn't want anything that was going to endanger their grant money or, you know, their role in the hierarchy. And, you know, of course, I think at this point, Cornell is getting just tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions from the biotech industry now. So yeah, there's there's very little room for um, dissent, even intellectual dissent, let
1: alone political dissent in this area. Okay, I have prepared a question on measles, if that's okay. Yeah. So one of the things that interested me, particularly when I, I opened various web pages alongside the documentary, listening to it, was the section on the doctor Stefan Manker, who's a microbiologist. Is that uh, correctly what yeah. he does, I think. Yeah. And um, so he put out this challenge uh, for hundred thousand euros for anyone who could prove to him that the measles virus existed, and Dr. David Bardens claimed he could, he could prove that, and it all ended up in court. Bardens won, and then there was an appeal to a higher court, and now it really depends who you're listening to as to what happened next. Well, the verdict went Lanker's direction, okay, but the why of that, okay, because if I read the Wikipedia article, to to sum up, it, it essentially says Lanker engaged in a kind of legal trickery, where he worded the contest in a certain way that ensured he would win. So he said it has to be one paper that contains a complete proof of measles existence, and Barden couldn't do it with one paper. He had six, and that's completely normal in virology, that you would base it on multiple points of evidence, and therefore he lost. But really, Lanka was just engaging in legal chicanery, and we all know measles existed. Now, when I listen to Lanker, there's a different story. There's that none of those six papers had control experiments in them, and therefore, whilst no individual paper demonstrates the existence of measles neither do they in combination and this is the wider thing that i just find shocking about virology whether it's polio or measles or anything not containing adequate control experiments so maybe you could comment on on that if i if i accurately summed up that situation
0: um yeah i i um when i was i I talked to Stefan about the trial and um that's essentially right but I, i was very taken with um and this is in we talk about it in episode two of the series with the uh, commentary by Harold Wallach, who is a German philosopher of science. And and he, simply because he has an interest in these things, found out about the trial while it was going. And so he started to c- kind of cover it from an academic perspective, like, wow, well, this isn't, isn't this interesting, you know? And, if, and and he was really a very conservative fellow, like from, from a very mainstream perspective. I've, I've sort of, starting to try to change how he used language. And we can talk about that a little bit, but he, he basically watched this trial and he wrote to Stefan and, and, and he looked at the documents and he was completely amazed. And he said, I, I think this guy is actually right. They, they, they don't actually, these papers don't, don't prove anything whatsoever. And then, so he ended up bringing those papers to another virologist, I think in Switzerland. And she, in, Confidence wrote back to him and said, "You know, yeah, it's it's kind of true. It's it is quite interesting. They definitely don't prove anything, <laughs> uh, and we should we should as a as a community of virologists, we should go back and we should do more uh, foundational experiments. Maybe somebody will do that at some point. And that was kind of the end of it. And that to me rings very true as to how uh, these sort kind of these how all of this kind of develops and i think it's worth watching the whole episode i don't want to kind of completely retell the story now but it's it's worth watching the episode to get into it
1: no absolutely. that that's that's more than I, I i'm leading up to a question sort of a challenging question but one of the things uh, in looking into this claim, I was going on the Wikipedia articles and linking, going through to the links from that, and I came up with a critical article from a Stephen Novella, and I, I'm familiar with Stephen Novella because of his, he's been critical of things like near-death experience on, on the past, and he was a guest on Skeptico, Alex Kears' Skeptico show, to talk about that. And it's a rather obnoxiously written article, to be honest. And um, The title is, Yes, Dr. Lanker, Measles is Real. And one of the, the paragraphs which really shocked me into silence was kind of an admission where Stephen Avella writes, I'll just read it if that's okay. The existence of viruses is also largely determined through inference. Most viruses are too small to be seen through a microscope and they can't be easily grown in a dish like bacteria. Viruses are identified through isolating antibodies to them, isolating viral proteins, demonstrating biochemical activity, demonstrating disease activity, and eventually taking electron micrographs of viral particles. Taken together, this evidence can be absolutely definitive, but the denier can continue to argue that the evidence is all indirect or mistaken. Now, I found that a real, oh my goodness moment, because to me, that is not the public perception of where virology is at. When I saw the images of the Covid virus, You know those images where it's all in colour and it's a floating thing and I use some of them for a cover piece I used on an article I wrote on COVID and the implications of lockdowns right at the start. And I didn't really think about it, but when I saw that I thought, yeah, that, that's the COVID virus, right? that's what it looks like. When you look under the electron microscope you see one of these little purpley reddish things floating around in three dimensions. And it was only later I found that's an that's an artistic rendering. Okay. So that that first line of what Dr. Novella is writing there, the existence of viruses is also largely determined through inference was quite incredible to me. That that's what the that that's the strongest counter-argument the critics can make.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's kind of like a like a a circus trick. And I I don't mean it as a trick. I think people really believe it. They're not trying to trick you or something, but You know, it's like if you, you know, if some at the circus, they say uh, inside this box, there's a unicorn. And uh, if you look through this hole, you can see the hooves and you look through this hole, you can see the tail. And if you look through this hole, you can see the horn. And it looks from that perspective, like there's a unicorn in there, but you don't know that there's a unicorn in there. There's, you know, there could be a a horse and a rhino, you know, there could be a, a, a man holding a horn. It's completely inconclusive. The analogy is to say the electron microscope images, right, where they look through an electron microscope and they see circles in the fluids of a sick person. And they say, "Ah, well, you know, our conception of a virus is that it's a circle. So we saw a circle. And the the problem is that there's there's many other things in, in the human body that that look like circles in under the electron microscope and there are there even published scientific articles in the last few years of microbiologists saying you know in this paper uh it was claimed that these photographs are of the SARS-CoV-2 virus but uh, you don't you don't know that that that's that's an outlandish claim you know because th- this these could be other Particles, other other things look like that under the microscope that would uh, could absolutely be there. And, you know, but again, what happens is that uh, those articles get ignored and the articles that sort of confirm the consensus that, oh, no, they must be. We we saw it. We we found it. Those get, you know, magnified ad nauseum. that's what happens over and over and over again, um, is that each one of these holes that you look through whether it's the electron uh, microscope or whether it's the cytopathic effect experiment, they all beg the question. They all start with the presumption that there is a virus there. There are many other things that could explain why the experiment turned out the way it did, but they over and over and over again say, well, it must be the virus that did it. So these cells must have died because when we put uh, a sick person's fluid on top of these monkey kidney cells, these kidney cells died. Well, that, that must be because there was a virus that killed the monkey kidney cells. And, but you know, there's other microbiologists saying, well, you added antibiotics to that mixture and antibiotics will also uh, uh, affect those kidney cells and they'll, they'll also produce cell death there. So you don't know that. And then like Mark Bailey, Dr. Mark Bailey, he's spoken with some of the virologists in more depth and found out that, you know, they tried like in, in one of these experiments, they they tried over a hundred times to induce cell death by putting the the fluid of a, a patient who was said to be a COVID patient on these cells and none of the cells died. And finally, like the 105th time they got some cell death, and, and he said, oh, that's interesting. Did anything else change in that experiment? And the virologist told him, well, yeah, I mean, the only other thing that we did in that one experiment was we doubled the antibiotics, but that's, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> you go, okay, well, <laughs> I think we have an interesting, you know, case of exactly what we're talking about here.
1: That's part of the series that I find, hard, like the hardest to accept on some level, that they're wrong good control experiments. That, that's just shocking to me i don't even know what to ask about it other than to say other than to say that that it 's shocking
0: yeah, you just have to read the papers, which is really hard i mean it it takes a long time to get to the point where you can read the papers, but you can, and thankfully, there are um, these brilliant scientists out there who have spent a lot of time deconstructing these papers and 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 explaining. The language, and you know what all what all the lingua lingo means so that you can slowly you know get to it. And then eventually you can just read the paper yourself and see, oh, yeah, there's no control experiment there. And I, I now understand that when they say isolated, they don't actually mean isolated in the in the way that everybody expects them to uh, to use it, the, the 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 English definition of the word. They're using it in a totally different way. And I think that the reason that, you know, it it continues to be used, the word is used, even though what they actually do is they they don't isolate anything. They actually combine patient fluids with other things and then claim that they've isolated the virus when actually they've just added stuff to the patient fluid. That It's still ingrained in the scientific community to use that word isolate because it's been such a bedrock of microbiology that they, they couldn't deviate from that where they had to use that word because you have, to, you have to do that. You have to have the thing that you're studying. You have to have proven that you found something that you're studying before you move on to, to, to make claims about it. Um, so they still use the word, but they've just redefined it so that they can sort of venture off into getting grants to 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 do other kind of work.
1: Okay. Could, could I ask a critical question about measles. So one way I thought about this is if, okay, what if I was in the jury, a jury member for a trial of these different viruses and polio was on trial for paralyzing all those people and HIV was on trial for killing all those people through AIDS. And potentially they're going to go off to the electric chair at the end of this. And I've got to decide if they're guilty or not. Okay. Well One form of legal defense the defense attorneys could put forward is look, my client might be innocent because there are other potential culprits who were right there at the crime scene who also had blood on their hands and a sharp blade. So, in the case of polio, you could say, look, it corresponds with all this uh, spraying of insecticides and DDT, and the graph actually better correlates with that than it does with this imagined virus so so polio if it even exists is innocent and with HIV you could say well well, those those men were destroying their immune systems for the use of poppers and AZT the the drug to to treat AIDS to treat HIV has the same immunosuppressant immunodestroying effect so clearly there's more than one potential corporate here and I think I'd have to knowing what I know about it now which is not a great deal but it's if, if I was making that position today, I'd say, well, yeah, I can't convict either polio or HIV of causing those deaths because they, they really are viable other candidates. With measles, I don't see that. So even if Stefan Lanker is right, it's not being isolated, there's no experiment that shows it, and we only know about it through inference, I think, well, yeah, but maybe it's a good inference because, yeah, you could say well, measles is very connected to vitamin A deficiency, but measles isn't vitamin A deficiency the way scurvy is vitamin C deficiency. So I find the the alternatives seem to be a, like a detoxification process. They all seem a bit of a stretch to me. So I, w- I want to phrase this question in the best possible way of saying, do you think that there are like viable alternatives, not just far-reaching alternatives that are less likely than a virus for, for causing these kind of childhood diseases like measles? And or let's say, or do you feel there's like more work to be done to establish if it's not a virus, what on earth is going on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one piece of evidence that we have is that, you know, measles incidents fell off a cliff, you know, significantly before there was a measles vaccine. Oh, absolutely. Something happened that brought measles incidents down. You know, I I haven't done a deep, super deep dive to look at what changed in the environment in nineteen, I think it was like the thirties and the forties. I think that that measles incidents fell. I'd have to go back to look at the chart exactly, um, but you'd have to look at like what what was in the environment. You know what what was going on. What was in the food? What was in the medicine that people were taking? You know, was there a change in the smallpox vaccine that that was put out? There. You know, there's there's all sorts of things that that are changing all the time in our environment. And I think that, I hope that people can take that away. Uh, If there's anything that I hope people take away from, from looking into this, it's that when people get sick, we have to ask the question of what changed in your environment? What changed in your food? What changed in your air? What changed in your water? What changed altogether in your life? And I've found that that, you know, for me on a very personal level, that's been incredibly helpful to my health and to my wife's health. So you know that was like the case with my wife, right? Like where you know they were like, "Well, it's just genetic," you know, it just happened to kick in. But no, there was actually something in the environment that they hadn't noticed, and that tends to be the story of so many diseases that we've looked at, whether it's scurvy or smallpox or polio or or.
1: Any, yeah, but you know? let me stop you, Mike. Yeah. I think there's a distinction there because scurvy, and it, I'm actually producing a little documentary on this, I think it's fascinating, right? It's absolutely fascinating how people didn't see what scurvy was for so long, given the economic cost of it and the cost in human lives. Mm-hmm. But scur- we can clearly identify that scurvy is vitamin C deficiency, and it's no more than that. It's not a virus that attacks you when you're deficient in vitamin C. And everyone who is cynical of the measles vaccine or everyone who believes in, in the importance of the environment will fully acknowledge that, that. measles, I think the death rate went down 95% before the introduction off the vaccine but the case rate is supposed to have remained relatively the same and then it fell after the vaccine now let's say there are ways you could foot those numbers so let, let's not go there but everyone would then looking at that would have to acknowledge that measles has this massive massive environmental component more than a component it, it's that is the major thing and you could posit that probably kids got more vitamin a that would be one thing that you could say because People are very susceptible and the low in vitamin A to measles, so that's one thing. And probably their immune systems aren't stressed because if you look at the living conditions prior to the uh, Second World War, certainly in Britain, it's shocking, right? It's hard to believe that there are people still walking around the world who who knew such mouldy, damp, decrepit living conditions, where they're living off a piece of bread and half an egg a day or something, um, and working down the mines. So, absolutely, it's environmental, but it it seems distinct from scurvy in that sense that you could just say well okay all those environmental factors and and a depre- like having low levels of um, vitamin a in your system make you susceptible to this measles virus and i'm not saying we can prove or disprove but maybe what i'm saying is there still seems to be a case there that there could be some external agent that plays this role in measles or do you do you not think so or
0: well i mean i just i, I mean on one level you'd say okay if if there was then then they would have found it right they'd, they'd be able to isolate it and um, is, it, is
1: that not like saying though they haven't found the Higgs boson particle because it's just so small but you infer its existence from what's going on around it i'm, I'm just trying to give i don't know about, about that i don't i just believe. don't
0: know i don't know enough physics to be able to comment no that,
1: okay no but what, but you don't have to know physics to know that the Higgs boson is so small that you can never ever see it but if you look at the patterns of how matter is behaving around it then you can say okay well there must be a particle that it could be something else right but you can infer there must be some sort of particle there because i don't know anything about physics either but the, i think the analogy still works that well there could be this really small measles virus that we can't really see yeah but that's that's it, it, see, there, uh, there
0: could be anything right there, there, yeah, there, there, there yeah. could be anything i mean you know maybe 400 years ago you might say there's a demon and yeah. and, and it has no uh physical uh property but uh, so you'll never be able to, to find sure, it. But... I,
1: I wouldn't fall off my chair in shock if 50 years from now it came out that the condition that is measles is not caused by a virus. So, okay, well, like the, the, all these other conditions weren't, so why would I be surprised? Right. But I'm just trying to assess really where this case is at, because I, I think it's one of the most fascinating cases for anything that's going on. The idea that we may have grossly overblown viruses or they may not exist, but there, there does seem to be levels, like with it seems to be like polio and hiv to me seem to be much stronger arguments than than measles and i'm, I'm just wondering if that's if you think there are levels in that if you think it's, if the arguments are better developed in some ways or if you think it's like a slam dunk for all of them
0: i i mean i just don't i don't think there's i don't think there's serious evidence for for any of it i mean after looking at it carefully there's just no serious evidence for any of it i mean it you know again the the the, the central Defining paper on measles, you know, which we talk about a lot in, in the second episode, is this 1954 paper by Enders, in which he says, you know, we we took the the, the fluid of a of a sick kid and we put it on these monkey kidney cells and we added uh, milk and sheep's blood and cow's blood and antibiotics and and we put it on these uh, monkey kidney cells and, and some of the monkey kidney cells died. And then he notes at the end, interestingly, we also put the fluids of a healthy person who didn't have measles. And with all these other additions, uh, the cells also died. Maybe somebody should look into that. But I think that the reason that the cells died was from the fact that there's something in the, 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 the kid's fluid that's related to the fact that he had measles. Well, that's just a completely, like, entirely inconclusive argument i mean it's it's completely specious you know you could investigate you could continue to investigate and that's fun um but what happened is essentially you you had more specious arguments piled on top of that um and i think the central reason why it, it was funded and and people continued to 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 go down that that route was that it justified uh the vaccine so i mean you can't no you can't prove that there isn't a little demon uh or a little evil gnome or a specific cell raping virus in there but it's neither here nor there it's it's it completely uh, i wouldn't want my treatment based
1: on that yeah okay that's perfect i think that's really brought clarity uh, to my mind and then hopefully the audience by proxy there so that's that's great thank you OK, my, my penultimate question was going to be about COVID and the death spikes we see and what could account for that. You know, I think we've kind of talked about that in other ways, about how different factors come in. And I think I probably put all the stuff out on hydroxychloroquine and midazolan. And if people watch the first episode of, of your documentary series, Klaus Kohline is on there talking about the different things that could have caused the death rate to spike. So I'm tempted to, to leave that not risk kind of repeating ourselves in just in a different form and I'd like to ask the, the final question I have is about the nature of the dialogue taking place on this issue because it, it seems to me that everything got polarized very quickly in COVID and you've got these these two different groups who are very cynical of very much opposed to the state's COVID policies of lockdowns and they both rec- both groups recognize this is uh, the, the masks are ineffective that the lockdowns caused devastation, that potentially millions of people have starved across the world. Okay, Um, but they have a completely different accounting for what is actually going on. So there'll be a lot of overlap between a book like Virus Mania and... Robert Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, except in Robert Kennedy's book, there's this real virus that's running around and it's really killing a lot of people. And it's really very dangerous. And what we need is treatment options like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and so on. And then obviously the, the virus mania, the, the, the no virus paradigm completely rejects that. And when I've spoken to people about this issue and groups I go to and all the rest, everyone says the same thing. Everyone's confused about this and everyone wants to see people from opposing camps in the same room. And that never seems to happen. And i know mark bailey i think in the first episode of the series says uh, dr mark bailey said it's it's been impossible it's been impossible to talk to people and I, I tried to follow this rabbit hole a bit i listened to um so i read sorry some of steve <laughs> kirsch's newsletter he sort of famously appeared on brett weinstein's podcast of robert malone and he was writing these very aggressive kind of newsletters about how the, the virus people the no virus people are all running a con and uh, they won't turn up to debate him and then I thought, well, that doesn't look good. Maybe Mark Bailey's wrong. And I pulled that thread a bit further and then Steve Kirsch did not come out of that looking well at all. And it just, it seems to have polarised in the way that truth movements, like I, I have a background looking at 9 truth and that all polarised very quickly and it ended up all this infighting. So I, I know that just listening to Sam Bailey's podcast yesterday, she's going down the line with her husband now of setting out rather than engaging in debate, which just doesn't seem to have happened, of um, of doing scientific trials, proposing what scientific trials people who propose a virus hypothesis would need to undergo to, to demonstrate their their theory, and it could be proven or disproven. But I, I'm really asking, what's your sense? Because you must have had, had or attempted engagement with people who have opposing views to this, um, and not people who are radical supporters of the state, people who are themselves dissidents, but radically who really are opposed to the to the uh, the, the no viral hypothesis. And do you think there's any chance of getting dialogue going? Because i am convinced that's the best way for the average player like myself to come to an understanding of these issues and to deepen one's understanding is to look at two people in a respectful conflict if you like so what's your sense of how the dialogue has been
0: um i I, I mean i think it is it is continuing to progress um i mean the big the big news in this world is that you know just this week mike Yeedon um, who's been a pretty, um, you know, outspoken and and uh, well-respected uh, figure, former Pfizer uh, vice president, I think, who's been very critical of the vaccines. That that he uh, came out just this past week and said, you know, it's pretty surprising. I've I've actually been uh, listening to Cowan and Kaufman and looking at these arguments and reading the papers and. Uh, he basically said I, I think they're right that not only is there no SARS-CoV-2 virus the whole idea of respiratory viruses is, is completely unfounded so that i think that's that's pretty significant news cuz cuz Mike Eden's one of only a handful of really kind of huge figures in the in the debate or in the in the anti lockdown community i think that it's definitely it's a, it's a tough topic that inspires all sorts of emotions. I think some of it's really good. And so sometimes it looks really messy because we're all in the middle of a learning curve right now, which goes back, uh, as we talk about in the documentary, it goes back over a hundred years to the people who were Speaking out uh, about the the obvious ineffectiveness of um, the smallpox vaccine and 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 how clear that was from from looking at what was going on at the time, you know, even before the the notion of of viruses existed, any any modern notion of of a virus whatsoever existed that. that this debate goes back and then from the very beginning and 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 we look at some of the doctors and who spoke out uh, about the claim that polio was a virus in the in the 50s and who were saying why why are we admitting that that the cows are dying from ddt but we won't admit that the that babies are dying from ddt and so it's not that this is totally new there have been doctors and scientists who've been writing and speaking out about this for a long time but i think because COVID is such has been such a big deal. It's such a huge phenomenon that, you know, it's generated enormous amount of new scientific interest in this topic. And so people are are looking at it, you know, with fresh eyes. All sorts of people are are, are diving in now. And you like, my friend Mike Stone has this blog where he goes back and he looks at the history of scientific papers on all sorts of different topics. So genetic sequencing and isolation and stuff like that. And, you know, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have seen it. And then, so you have all this burgeoning activity that's happening uh, intellectually. And then you have people who are uh, suspicious of anything that they think will like endanger the name of the of the anti-lockdown movement. They, you know, they're, they're afraid. They're, they're afraid of people calling them names and being too Too different, Um, you know. I understand that. Like, you know, there and then there's groups like Robert F Kennedy's group, which which you know is trying to play different roles. And you know, part of part of what they're doing is they're trying to generate a political movement. And and so they want to go on like, well, what's the simplest thing that we can unify everybody on? And that's just vaccines are dangerous. And that's it. And we don't we just want to push that as much as we can. And we're not interested in whether the whole thing is complete garbage or not. Because not enough people agree. I've spoken to people there and and there, you know, there there are voices inside that organization as well that are trying to make the case. And hopefully we'll 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 see that them and other organizations like them open up to the fact that um we need to debate these things. We need to be able to have free and open conversations about these topics because it it impacts how we see the future, what our vision is of what kind of world we're trying to build. I think that in the best case scenario, when people really understand that the virology thing is is a red herring and that disease develops out of poor nutrition, poor, poor water quality, poor soil quality, stress you know lack of sleep and and then there's this barrage of toxins that we're exposed to when people start to really see that then when these pharma controlled organizations like the who when they start bringing up monkeypox people are going to immediately understand that if we're seeing new symptoms in people there are real causes for that not imaginary propaganda uh, pieces, but real changes happening in our environment that we need to look at and we need to have conversations about that. If the focus is there, if if people's, if they if they understand intuitively to go there and not to go with what they've been taught in Independence Day or in Dr. Mario on the Nintendo or what they've been told on the radio by CBS News or whatever. Then it's going to backfire in their faces every time they try to scare people, because every time they try to scare people with a new symptomology that's arising, people are going to say, "Oh, wow, we better look at this. We better understand what new poisons are out there, or what new problems are happening in our food supply, and then we're going to have political movements that try to fix it. you know like I was just listening to an entomologist talking about bugs, you know when do bugs eat leaves and when do they not, and that bugs will only eat. The, the leaves of sick plants only. He said, you'll see 2000 bugs on one leaf and there'll be a, a leaf right next to it of a healthy plant and not a single bug on there because that's what bugs do, they eat sick plants. And so you, you want to have, you know, you want to have health. You want to like look for ways to ingrain health in our society. And that, that question of how do we have healthy, Healthy kids, healthy lives. That's a really profound political question that has to do with uh, issues of of class, of of you know wealth. Of you know, they're, they're, it it cuts to the core of what it means to think about our entire society. And and that's, in my view, what is so neatly avoided by the whole virology paradigm. Don't think about any of that. You don't have to think about any of that. You just have to think about this invisible entity and we've shown you a cgi of it that looks really scary and we're not going to talk about the fact that that cgi was based on a picture uh, from a a scientific paper in which you know that 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 could have been anything Uh, not anything but that there um, it certainly didn't there's no proof that that this thing exists let alone causes disease so while people are being bombarded with that imagery they're prone and they're not able to think critically, organize, to to attack the real issues in our society.
1: Absolutely. I think it's a great point to conclude on, if you don't have anything else you'd like to add.
0: I'm really grateful that you're you know, having this conversation with me and that, that your listeners are you know even interested in this topic, um, because there's so many people that have just been living with these media blinders on, and I was one of them, and I had no idea that actually um, Science is political, it's fascinating, and it is comprehensible. I guess the last thing that I would say in regards to your question and this whole topic is that I think one of the most extraordinary and delightful and most exhilarating things is when you ask these questions and then you start looking for the answers and you, and you, you hold these different hypotheses in your mind and you say, okay, maybe what this guy's saying is right. Maybe what he's saying is wrong. Let me Let me think about that in terms of this disease or that disease. And like a huge part of my journey was, you know, I already knew the story of polio. I already knew the story of smallpox. And and I already knew that the, that the mainstream medical narrative on that was completely fabricated. But then I didn't know the story of AIDS, you know, and I grew up in AIDS was everywhere. So when I first encountered this idea that the whole notion of disease being caused by viruses, that that whole notion was unscientific, that it was generated to sell a story, I thought, well, but what about AIDS? And, and I had to answer that question because I didn't, I didn't want to believe something that's not true. And so then I did all this research on AIDS and I discovered this, all of this extraordinary history. I mean, I can't, I can't like, implore people enough to go look at the history of this because it's completely been uh, blacked out from the public. I don't want to plug my documentary too much, but but watch episode four. It's so interesting.
1: No, do do plug the documentary. Now is the time to plug the doc. And I'll plug the documentary. I think it's a, a fantastic uh, investment. And seven hours long is it? In, in, packed with yeah, unbelievable experts. So whatever your opinion on this is, if you want to learn more about it, the documentary is is the place to go. Absolutely. So, yeah. You know anything else you like to say and then, then just I'll, I'll link to the documentary where people could find it below the trailer and the full thing and everything but, but just verbally tell people where they can where they can get it to
0: yeah it's really easy you just go to um the viral dot com as of right now um you can watch the first episode uh for free and uh first episode is two and a half hours long so hopefully mm-hmm. You'll get something out of that, and if you felt like you got something out of that and it was a valuable thing for you, then you can get the other four episodes for eleven ninety nine So the whole thing is five episodes seven and a half hours long. You know it's been one of the most satisfying experiences of my life to make the documentary and to to look at all this history. And as I say, it may not you know it may not answer all of your questions because we've been told so many things that turn out not to be true, but hopefully you will start thinking about this and then you can go on your own journey where you weigh it all out for yourself and then pick up rocks that maybe we didn't see
1: okay mike thank you very much indeed and uh, yeah it's been great it's been a very enlightening conversation for me and i hope the audience so thank you
0: oh thank you richard thank you for your for your time and and i i really appreciate it and um, i hope we get to uh, talk again yeah absolutely